Nordoff Robbins is a music therapy charity. We believe in the value of music for all people in society. We want to live in a world where through music, human potential is recognised regardless of disability, illness or social exclusion. We hope that by listening and hearing about the value of music through the eyes of these artists in this podcast, you will begin to understand how music and music therapy can benefit the lives of those who are faced with significant challenges. Find out more about music therapy and Nordoff Robbins at nordoff-robbins.org.uk. On the way to our Download Festival warm-up show in Bristol, uh, I just had a massive panic attack, and I didn't even know it was a panic attack at the time. It was only retrospectively that I realised what that was, and therefore realised what the panic attacks were that I'd had before that were. Hello and welcome to Three Track Therapy. I'm Chris Hawkins. I'm a radio presenter, and I love how amazing music makes us feel. And I'm Louise Gregg, a music therapist at Nordoff Robbins Music Therapy. I help people with their physical and emotional well-being through the shared experience of playing music together. In each episode of this series, Lou and I are joined by a different musician who will share the three tracks that have had the biggest influence on their lives. Could be a song that they've written themselves or a track by another artist, whatever their selection. Three Track Therapy is all about allowing artists and songwriters to open up about key pieces of music that have helped them to process and then share how they feel. Music has this amazing ability to make us really tangibly feel our shared vulnerability. Our guest on 3-Track Therapy on this episode is musician, composer and author Rao Reynolds. Rao's best known for being in the brilliant band Enter Shikari, who, since forming in 2003, have played over 2,000 shows and released six albums. Rao joins us following the release of the group's latest album, Nothing is True and Everything is Possible, to talk about the role music's played in helping him overcome some difficult periods of his life and in his career. We, we'll be talking to him about uh, two Enter Shikari tracks as well as a bonus track, by another band who hold a special place in his heart. Raoul, welcome to 3-Track Therapy. Hi. Was music part of your life from a very early age, Raoul? It was, yeah. Um, I I didn't have any sort of musicians in the family, but my nan, who lived with us, um, got me into sort of big band jazz, I guess. Uh, I can remember being, you know, up in her room uh, from about, six years old just being uh mesmerized by you know louis armstrong and, and all sorts of uh, kind of big band orchestras and stuff also my dad was a dj so uh, predominantly sort of northern soul and motown so i think you know they're two of the most melodic genres there are so that i think that was uh, really instilled into me from a from a young age as well is your nan still with us she's not no I wonder what she'd make of the the music that you do. Um, oh, she's she's one of them nans that would just she would say she loved whatever her grandson did. You know what I mean? Like, um, but I'm sure it wasn't quite her taste. Or you know, some of it probably probably would be. But um, turn it down a bit, Ra. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Put some trumpets on that one. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, trumpet is is well that that was the first instrument I learned actually, but because of my nan's influence, um, and it's probably the the instrument that has stayed with me the longest. I had like a, a little period of a few years of not thinking the trumpet was very cool, you know, like wanting to play the guitar when I was like 13 or something. Um, but then come back to it. And uh, especially in the last few albums, there's there's uh, quite, quite a fair bit of, of trumpet on it. So um, yeah, hopefully she'll be uh, looking down and, and nodding her head in uh, appreciation. 
Can you remember? This is a big question. Can you remember the first time that you really connected with a piece of music? I I can remember uh, disobeying my parents, which probably says something about like uh, you know. There's obviously that you have to be passionate about something to to disobey your parents. Um, and it was it was taking my little tape player, my Walkman, to bed and hiding it under my pillow so I could stay up and listen to Beatle to the Beatles. Sort of more more late era era Beatles, I suppose. I mean, Sergeant Pepper's is the one album that has just stayed with me forever. I, I just find it so. It's just it's just delving into a whole world, isn't it, of just texture and melody and an intrigue. And I think, yeah, even from that age, I, I just found it like quite magical, and I was just immediately sort of obsessed with it. Well, with that in mind, as an artist and as a band, as Shikari, you experiment with music, and your albums, the the albums that you've released haven't necessarily been a, a continuation of each other. You've You've twisted and turned and, and you've even surprised. But but one underlying theme in your writing, I would say, is unity. Is, is that for your soul or is that your way of reaching out to others? I, th- I, I sort of see it as it's, it's us being past the torch. I, I think music has this um, amazing ability to make us feel our... Make make us really tangibly feel our shared vulnerability. You know, we're all music can affect us all. But music's a bit of a dictator, isn't it? Like you, you don't really have a say in how music affects you emotionally. And I think that that reminds us that we're all, you know, at the at the end of the day, we're all the same. Using the sort of tools of, of unity, be, being instruments, um, yeah, we feel just like we're just taking the torch and continuing that. You know, providing a space where people can unite indiscriminately which i guess is the important thing because there there isn't really any other area i don't think within like culture or, or within life that is just so indiscriminately unifying i mean obviously you can argue about religion being a a uniting force but it's 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 very discriminate as well so um i think music and live music is is the one thing that is just innately unifying and and it, i think we're very lucky to have built up a a real sense of community around our band and it's something that we we pride ourselves on I think like you know those moments those really low moments on tour where you've been away for months and you're missing home and you're sleep deprived and it's and your head's a mess I think what keeps you going is is knowing that you know when you meet people at the shows that, that they they feel that sense of community and they feel that that sense of togetherness that that's uh it's fuel for us I think how confident are you, Rao, when you're being open and expressive when you're writing it, laying yourself bare? I think it's only within the last sort of five, six years that I've allowed myself to like completely open up. And I think with The Spark, which is our, 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 not our most recent, but the one before that, um, that was an album that... I felt compelled to like really delve into myself and it was an album of introspection. I had just come through a period of difficulty and yeah, I I just felt like I had no choice. I had to write this album and I had to delve into myself and um, kind of, you know, reveal the the inner workings of my mind and the, the, the the experiences that I'd I'd gone through and kind of analyse them and and project them into the music. We'll talk more about your lyric writing, uh, about the music that you make uh, uh, over the course of the next half hour. You've picked uh, three tracks to discuss uh, with uh, Louise and myself. Uh, 
and two of your own and one by one of your favourite artists. Rao, what's your first? Yeah, The Pressure's On, which is a track off our most recent album. Usually when you're stuck when you're starting a new album it really feels like you're at the foot of this mammoth mountain and you just have no idea how you're going to climb it you know you're looking back and you're seeing albums that you've done and you sort of you know you're, you're proud of them you you feel like uh, you managed to you know exercise those demons and now you're looking forward and it, it, it really is a time of like sheer anxiety um, and imposter syndrome and, and all sorts of that kind of thing um, and so this was one of the first riffs that, that sort of came forward and therefore the the, the lyric, the pressure's on, was, was very real in terms of the, the musical creation. Uh, so it was a, it's a track that then became, you know, about all sorts of other things, but also it has this this deep emotional sense of, um, of feeling the pressure of, of needing to create something else um, uh, and something else that I'm proud of and that, that pushes us forward, etc. When you head into that writing process, is there a way that you you go about tackling that? My main thing to concentrate on is being able to zoom in and out of the micro and the macro. So when you're looking at the project, you know, when you're at the foot of the mountain and you're looking up and, you, you know, you just think, how the hell am I going to climb this? It, it looks daunting and impossible um, and you just have to zoom yourself right in and go, okay, right, I've got this one riff. Let's see what I can do with that. And you have to sort of forget the the crippling anxiety that you'll get from seeing the bigger picture. And you just have to keep zooming in. And then, w- as you know, you find as you start to zoom out again, there's there's little chunks here and there that you can see on the on the grand scheme of things. And uh, as the music sort of starts to be built and as it comes together, um, so you so I just have to sort of keep an eye really on my mental state and and make sure that I'm not just panicking uh sort of needlessly and and obviously when I've when you've got when you've done six albums it's like you just have to tell yourself look you can do this you've proven to yourself again and again and again so it's gonna come so either just wait and relax or um or just you know just just write and see what comes out and um yeah, eventually you sort of uh, rid yourself of the of the worry. That is so interesting because I think like the lyrical content of this track, for me, has that uh, holds that tension of like feeling the pressure, knowing you need to try, but being acutely aware of a likely failure. Basically, it sounds like from what you said that that's probably a representation of how you feel at the start of a project like this. Yeah, exactly. That that's that's definitely how you feel. Like, there's no you can't sort of ascertain or or imagine the the full thing because you know a a full album is a it's a mad project it's like you know it's the songwriting it's the music production it's the mixing it's the mastering it's this whole beast and it's it is impossible to imagine a finished project um so it does feel kind of unobtainable really and even if you are able to imagine a finished project sometimes that's even worse because you're like christ how am i going to do this this is you know it's uh yeah it's so it's there's kind of no there's no winning in those early stages you just have to sort of t- 
take a step back, take a breath, and then just concentrate on, on as I say, just like little little pieces and just build it up. At that stage, it's because you're such a, a big live band, is that in your mind, how it's going to go down with audiences uh, when you're on stage? I think that's the, the main thing that drives you, is constantly asking yourself the question, is somebody else going to get this, inf- this feeling, this emotion that you're getting from the music you're making? So it's, it's almost like, a, you know, you get like super excited to know whether someone's going to feel the same thing. And if they do, then that's amazing. That's, you know, that's where we go back to thinking of music as a great communicator. I guess that's part of the vulnerability of sharing, isn't it? Like the, that moment where you're like, well, it, if this music makes me feel this way, I, I think it should make someone else feel that way. But there's that like hugely vulnerable moment of not actually knowing if that will be the case or not. Is that present for you? Like the first time you play something, is that, does that feel like a moment or are you just like in it enough to not really pay attention to it? No, I think it, it always feels like a moment, like whether it's, you know, me playing a demo to the rest of the guys in the band for the first time, there's, there'll be, you know, I'll be sitting there almost shaken with like uh, excitement and anxiety and like, oh, what are they going to think? Are they going to get it? You know, like, have I, have I portrayed this idea well enough? Um, is it going to hit home emotionally? And then the same thing when we first play songs live. Um, some of my most vivid and in- intense memories with live are like album release shows. So, you know, the, the the first gigs where we're playing new music for the first time. And, you know, if you hear the crowd roaring back the lyrics or, or you know, there's, there's an energy there. It's It's the most, like, gratifying... Uh, you know sort of out of this world experience because for the first time you're seeing that the emotions that you felt writing the song are are hitting and and connecting with the the audience i'd love to talk for a second about the opening riff of this track because it's it's super simple it's like it's basically like two notes right and on the first on the first listen like on a really technical level i was like well it's just kind of like the glue that holds the track together really but then the more I listen to it the more it kind of feels like this like ticking time bomb that just exists underneath everything else in the arrangement because when it stops just before verse two I think it is I was like oh and I suddenly felt this like moment of release because that thing that had been moving underneath it all that I didn't really consciously know was there stopped and then it starts again that there was certainly intention to inject a little bit of I don't want to say monotony but you know as you say having it's it's a very simple riff and it and it is on repeat really the the, um the kind of root notes change a little from the chorus to the verse but like the that riff is is the same On the actual track, it's to G. It should. It feels like it should resolve to G, but it never does. Which again just gives it this kind of relentless, like uh, like an ache. It's like oh, I want it to go there, but it never does. It's just going round and round. Yeah, it just keeps you in that perpetual struggle. I think, which is often what anxiety feels like. But it's, it's really interesting to to hear you talk about the when it stops because I, I hadn't like thought about that at all. So that's yeah. That's that's uh, really interesting to hear. Yeah, probably it's like from the middle eight. It 
it sounded to me like that the riff kind of gets taken on by like more assertive synth lines and like alongside the lyrics that happen at that point to me it kind of feels like a and again I I may be reading too much into it but it feels like a almost like that thing that's been like ticking along in the undercurrent like the monotony of it it's almost like you grab it and just like own it as like this is this is what's happening because that line suddenly becomes way more prominent in the arrangement yeah I, I well I, you, whether I, <laughs> I uh, intended that or not I think that's it it's a great point about like owning the anxiety because I think for for me especially there was a, a long period where I was trying to like get rid of it especially social anxiety or like uh, kind of shyness I suppose like and wanting to disown it and like get over it and stuff like that but like uh you know a lot of the the sort of literature or the solutions are about kind of acceptance really at the end of the day so i think ha- having that riff as you say then just like grabbing it and kind of bolstering and go okay well i'm going to make this part of me and i'm going to make this work for me i think that, yeah that's a it's a it's a really good point you better figure it out What's the next track that you've chosen? Yeah, The Sights, which is the the opening track of our previous album, The Spark. I mean, that whole album is basically about what I've sort of termed as the, the worst year of my life, which was 2015, where just so much happened and it was a bit of a, a kind of tumultuous period, really. I remember being really confused by the fact that I'd written this song that was, on the face of it, this kind of bouncy, jovial, positive track. Um, And that was not how I was feeling whatsoever. And I didn't really know where it came from. And I think, uh, you know, I'm I'm sure there's kind of all sorts of reasons that it could be. But like one of them that I sort of settled on was that it was I knew that eventually in the sort of a year's time after we've recorded this album and released it and start touring it I'm going to be on the road and I'm going to be playing this on stage and I sort of saw this track as like the in a year's time I'm going to be in such a better place I know I can't envisage it right now because I'm like properly you know at the bottom rock bottom but like I'm going to be on a stage and I'm going to be singing this song like bouncing around jumping around like a headless chicken and it's going to be a lot of fun um and that that's all i can really sort of think of as a in a way of an explanation right when did uh you first start to realize that things weren't right for you when the balance was tipping when, when did you acknowledge that the 
there was something not not right for you? It was very sudden and very obvious. Um, so I was, I was, you know, c- clearly sort of suffering from exhaustion. We, we were on tour a lot um, that year, and then there was a uh, a Kerrang Awards ceremony, um, which, and I hate being, I hate speaking about this kind of thing because people will immediately think, oh, what, what's he complaining complaining about having to go to awards ceremonies? Oh, what's well, awesome, you know, that kind of thing. But like for me, they're like the most anxiety triggering thing it's just you know having all those eyes on you and all those egos in one place and it's just it's I find them um incredibly daunting it's possibly hard to sort of imagine this but if you win it's even scarier because you know you've got to go up onto the podium and you've got to do a a a speech and you've got to be in you know as a front man you've got to be interesting you've got to be witty you've got to seem grateful and like grounded at the same time there's all these sort of pressures and yeah I just I find it um terrifying really um but of course like you can't speak about that as a rock star you have to be sort of cocksure all the time and like so it's this it's this real uh there's just a constant just noise in my head of oh you need to be acting like this oh no you should be that was too much should act like this and it's uh, it gets quite quite intense in in these scenarios especially and yeah so so you know obviously to deal with that i did what most people in that situation do and self medicate which is obviously a euphemism for drugs so the next the next day after not sleeping um and i also had incredibly bad hay fever as well um which didn't help um and basically on the way to our download festival warm up show in bristol uh, I just had a massive panic attack and I didn't even know it was a panic attack at the time. Um, it was only retrospectively that I realised what that was and therefore realised what the panic attacks were that I'd had before that were. Um, so yeah, it was it was a very sort of slap in the face, like something's wrong here, you're not dealing with something. Um, and it just got worse from then. I mean, I had, after that panic attack, I, I guess the, the sheer amount of... Uh, chemical change in my body meant that I didn't sleep for a week which was an incredibly odd experience and um and therefore my sort of my general my generalized anxiety disorder just went out you know through the roof uh as any sort of ailment does when you when you can't sleep you you um you just sort of lose all control really what what sort of stuff is going through your mind at this time kind of all sorts it's just it just becomes a an utter mess like as i say you have no control over your sort of thought process um so it's very disorientating it's incredibly scary um i remember all sorts of effects really i i, I think my anxiety around sleep just became you know thinking about it now it's just really ridiculous thoughts like i, I thought i'd never sleep again i was like well basically that means at some point you're going to die um my my sort of health anxiety went through the roof so I thought I had all these things you know all these ailments all these diseases that were making me not sleep and I was going to die from them this was an interesting one like I used to get I mean everyone gets like earworms right so like thing you'll hear a song and it gets stuck in your head and it you can enjoy that experience or it, sometimes it can be far, thoroughly frustrating um I started just I didn't ever um start seeing things like hallucinating but I hallucinated audibly so like I I can remember there was a a lift ding that went off and I I just couldn't stop hearing it for the like the rest of the day and I didn't know if it was real or not and it was it was it was um that kind of thing just is thoroughly disconcerting 
uh, you, you you honestly think you're going mad. And it wasn't until I sort of saw the, I mean, I was seeing a psychologist pretty pretty pronto, but it wasn't until I, I saw the psychotherapist that I, I sort of felt like, oh, okay, I felt a bit of calm like someone was telling me okay at the moment you're feeling this this and this that's because you've got this this and this it's not a a, a thing that is um going to be consistent now for the rest of your life you just need to it's it's all going to go back to normal eventually and I guess it was just having that bit of um reassurance that that I needed to start the the process of of getting better taking it to to this track specifically some of that some of that like conflict feels present in a few different ways in the track. Um, I think like I I really love the amount of lyrical repetition in this song, because um, in a way it kind of to me evokes that sense of like a lack of stability or like a feeling of things getting a bit out of control. Um, was that was that intended in the writing process or is it just sort of what what happened when you were coming up with lyrics? Um, yeah, well, I wanted that. I mean, obviously, usually it's it's only the chorus in pop music that is the thing that repeats. And I wanted to have this kind of, I guess it's a verse, but it, you know, are you staying awake for the lift off tonight? I wanted that to repeat a lot because it was the essence of the song, really. It's about, in, on one hand, it's about excitement and a new start once you're, once you can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, but at the same time, it, it's an incredibly dark lyric because it was about, my fear of never being able to see um not sleeping in a sort of excited sense again so you know when you're a kid and you're like you're going on holiday the next day or going to theme park and you can't sleep because you're so excited I sort of thought well sleep for me is now such a a painful thing to even think about and just so riddled with anxiety that I'm never going to be able to have that feeling again and and so it's almost like an an in joke you know saying are you staying awake for the lift off tonight you'll never believe the sights tonight the sights tonight it's like I'm never going to feel that again so it was almost like I was just taking the piss out of my my newly found uh anxious state um and so I think that's that's always been quite important for me as well just to keep an element of sort of humor in the music we do or maybe not even humor but just sort of I'm not even sure what the word would be but I think that there's that sort of defense mechanism isn't there that like if you're able to joke about something it's sort of you it's kind of telling yourself that you're still alive do you know what I mean it's like this this kind of bit of artillery that that we have that that means we're still alive we're still kind of have some form of control um because we can make a joke about it and we can you know connect with people uh via humor in a second it would be great if you could like play us into the chorus but um just before you do if that's okay um the the thing that like launches the chorus is that vocal each time which is that kind of like scream of where there's life there's hope and that that kind of set in the music feels like uh, it feels full of life and of hope, but also a little bit desperate to believe that what you're saying is true. It's it's basically a, a paraphrase or you know a sort of half quote of, of Cicero, um, where there's life, there's hope, which is you know basically saying even when you're at the very bottom, if you're not dead, there's a chance that you know things are going to get better. 
And uh, see, I'm not really one for kind of hope for hope's sake or just like, you know, a sort of, a, a kind of optimism, a never ending optimism without any sort of reason or purpose or, you know, anything to it. So I, I thought that that quote was was quite nice because it, it makes you think positively, but like it doesn't it's not sort of reassuring or like mollycoddling or like maternal in any way. Um which I really liked, and yeah, as you say, it kind of it's the perfect way to sort of lead in the into the chorus. It, it kind of adds positivity, but it doesn't kind of drown you in like false positivity. It's over now, and I'm a little bit petrified of what's to come. Yeah, my head's a bit stir fried. It's over now, and I'm a little unqualified. Fire up the rockets I'm searching Far and wide I want Blah 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 Etc etc Do you know The Like the middle eight Is this like Really amazing Still Vulnerable moment Where it kind of feels like You step out of the The track in a way To confide in The listener With this like deep vulnerability that's like the voice underneath everything else that's happening did it did it feel that vulnerable to write and to sing as it feels to listen to it yeah yeah I mean I think there there are moments on the whole of this album that it is certainly there is genuine vulnerability to it because even though I was we were recording it when I was kind of on the way out of that period I suppose there was still it was very real. Like we're thinking about that period now. It just seems like I was a different person. It's very hard to really feel those, those same emotions and that level of anxiety. I I can't really put myself in that headspace anymore, which is a, a very odd um, kind of aspect of, of our minds, isn't it? Where, where we sort of block out really dark moments in, in our lives. Um, which is quite interesting. No, not that I'm doing it with any level of uh, desire, because I'd, I'd almost like to be intrigued to to feel those emotions again, just to in a, in a way of to sort of analyse them or something. But um, I, I feel like I, I'm not able to. Um, but yeah, this is, but when we were recording it, on the other hand, it was certainly still very raw. Um, and yeah, that 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 mid late in this song, and there's there's a few other moments, obviously, airfield on the album. Um, and then the, the the last track, I know to lost jigsaw pieces, especially. There's moments of of real, real vulnerability there. I mean, on the last track, I'm pretty much in tears by the end of it. Um, so it's, I think there was that, but that had to be. You know, I, I I couldn't if we were recording these songs now, I wouldn't be able to do them justice. I don't think, uh, or I'd feel like I was acting to some extent. Um, obviously, when you're playing the music, you can get in a sort of headspace, and more than anything, the music does make me remember the headspace that I was in um but it's still it's still perhaps not enough to to achieve the the degree of of rawness and and realism that that we managed to when we did it do you uh, play music at home to uh, alleviate anxiety just for yourself there would i would look at music as being a tool for different things so you know if i was about to do some new experience that I was really anxious about I would maybe you know there's a lot of research now into playing sort of like 
not particularly high paced, but like strong, bold, bass heavy, you know, music. And you sort of, you know, you pull a wide stance and you and you get you, you make yourself feel tall and all, all this kind of thing. And it, it's supposed to help a lot. So I've de- I've definitely used that. But at the same time, I've I've used sort of somber music, consoling music. It, it's uh, it's just us knowing that we're not alone in feeling something. So if we hear a a track that is it's really conveying a sense of uh, adversity in, in in some way or, 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 or some form of sadness then then we can feel ah oh, someone else has, has felt this that I've that I'm feeling now someone else has gone through it I'm, I'm not alone it's first of all it's normal which is a which is a big thing for me I think especially going back to 2015 I had my knowledge of mental health was quite poor and you know, I, I can blame our education system, but at the same time, I, I I think I'm partly to blame with that as well. And and so I just thought there were things wrong with me, these little idiosyncrasies that were, what is this? Oh, I guess I'm just weird. I guess I'm just broken, you know. And so finding out what things actually are and finding out that you're not alone. And these are like normal things that are just down to human vulnerability. They're normal ways that our minds work. Um, I think that's that's always a, an emboldening kind of discovery. So I guess the the third and final track that uh, you've chosen to to discuss, maybe even dissect, is is one that uh, gives you a sense of uh, maybe calm. Yeah, definitely calm. It's it's Midnight by Coldplay, and it's off their album Ghost Stories, which was quite a departure for them. Um, it's a it's a much more kind of stripped back more perhaps more electronic more thoughtful more somber album and it was it was chris wrote it just as he's uh, going through his breakup with uh gwyneth paltrow that runs through that whole album but a deep acceptance as well which which I find even more endearing I mean as a sort of empathic being your your heart just immediately goes out to to someone who's like you know attempting to get their their stuff their shit together um but possibly failing or you know possibly starting to come through it or not um so I just found that like hugely endearing for for this whole album and it was it came out not too uh long before i went through quite a uh well the breakup was wasn't horrible but like it was um it was a very long long long-term relationship so i found it very difficult in terms of it was just a shock you know it was a it was a a big change in my life so yeah this this whole album really kind of spoke to me a lot in that period are there any parts of the um, of this track, either musically or lyrically, that you feel like, um, I guess, that stand out to you that um, that have impacted you more than other parts of the track? I, I think just it's just that I mean, it's there's not a great deal going on. It's quite bare, really. But the, the, those the synths that start it off, I don't even know if you can call it synths. I'm not sure if it was like sampled or like a granular thing, but they're just so beautiful. The texture. 
I think that's something that John Hopkins is especially so good at evoking emotion, not just through harmony, but through texture. Um, it's so delicate. It's like these little, it's no, it's, it feels like, um, someone dropping like pebbles into the ocean, like little, just little pebbles, like, or something. It has this really sort of, uh, I don't know what it evokes really, but it's, it's incredibly powerful. Um, and obviously the, the vocoder effect is, is, has this real lush otherworldly sense to the, to the vocals. I mean, I, I, I know a lot of people have severe hatred for Coldplay and I, I, I've, I've been sort of sticking up for them most of my life really, but I, certainly Chris is not the best lyricist in, in the world. Um, so it, it doesn't really bother me that you, you can't hear a lot of the lyrics really. You can't sort of pick out what he's saying because you don't really need to. I don't think that's the strength of this album. It, it's the music. The music says enough. It's it kind of the music's like the open arms that brings you in, and if if you if you um, find yourself connecting with a the lyric, then I think that's just kind of the cherry on on top, really. But a lot a lot of people probably probably won't because it is it is full of sort of cliches and things. Well, uh, is this the life that you always wanted to live? <laughs> well, um, who knows? I mean, I. I've always sort of been the the type of person who who hasn't really dreamed big. Like I've taken each day as it comes and with the band especially so. Um you know, I normally say with the band it's just a hobby that got out of hand. You know. <laughs> so I think it it's difficult to say whether this was I I I'm not really sure what I'd be doing if I wasn't doing this. Hopefully I'll be doing something within music. Um, because I mean that that essentially is it's music creation that that gives me the most joy in life. Bearing in mind what you said about the dark times in your life, do you think that being famous has made your life better than it would have been otherwise? Oh, that's an interesting one. I think for things like having that outlet, having that ability to speak to many people, so that's not just having a band; it's it's having social media it's having success that I, I think I've benefited greatly from that. You know, even just using the example that I already spoke about just by having lots of people to open up to and, and them telling me their experiences likewise and, and feeling that connection and, and feeling uh, a sense of like safety or protection or uh, normality. Um, th- th- those things have been hugely helpful. Um, I've never got to the stage where fame has really impeded my everyday life. Like, you know, I, I'm certainly not going to be recognised walking down a, a street or something, really. So, yeah, I, I, I think we we've achieved a level that is is really good. Um, it's really it's it's kind of a we 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 can take a lot of the positives without having to deal with a lot of the negatives of, of fame, I suppose. Wow, I've like found this conversation so um so insightful and your your like centeredness um in your ability to kind of be in what's happening and talk about it, um and both in respects to music and in terms of your your own personal life, while still maintaining some like macro perspective and like overarching narrative over it is is really really wonderful to be able to to sit with and and talk to so thank you so much for your for your sharing for your uh for your vulnerability 
and uh, and for playing for us as well because it always feels like a like a treat to be able to sit here and like listen to people just playing in their houses where they are. So thank you so much. Oh, that, that's so kind of you. Thank you. I, I mean, I really appreciate your uh, insights as well. Like this, some of it was so interesting that I I hadn't thought of at all myself. Uh, yeah, it's been a very enjoyable conversation. Thank you. Ralph, thanks for being so honest. Thank you very, very much. Cheers. Thanks for having me. Lou, there's a, a very honest guy. Very honest indeed. Um, and someone who has, like, gone through gone through an awful lot, but really owned every moment of that. Not only has he processed it, but he's also managed to find healthy creative space to to make that work for him like so great yeah and so eloquent uh gotta remember you know he plays to tens of thousands of fans uh, at festivals their own gigs you know he uh he knows what he's doing doesn't he without being uh, contrived yeah definitely and it like this is probably a bit of a like separate thought but it does make me really conscious of the i think we it's easy to to assume that uh, the frontman of a band has like is going to be a certain way and be really extroverted and like really enjoy all of the extra elements of what it requires to be in a band, but that's actually it's actually not the case for everyone. And to hear that perspective is really refreshing. I think all of what he talked about was music therapy. Yeah, yeah, for sure, he totally gets it. Rao, if you want to train as a music therapist, you know, <laughs> you know where to come. That's all for this episode of Three Track Therapy. You've been listening to me, Chris Hawkins, and music therapist, Louise Gregg. For more information about music therapy, visit nordoff-robbins.org.uk. Nordoff Robbins Music Therapy is the UK's largest independent music therapy charity dedicated to bringing music therapy to those affected by mental health, life-limiting illness, isolation or disability.